0: what's up catching up with cub listeners we are on a mission to make this podcast australia's number one entrepreneurial podcast and if you enjoy listening you can help us do so by rating us five stars and leaving us a review your reviews will help other listeners find our show and it lets me know what you want to hear more of i'm so incredibly grateful for your support now let's get to the show Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, I catch up with my friend, Theo Chambers, the founder and CEO of Shore Financial, Australia's number one independent mortgage brokerage firm, six years running. Theo shared advice on starting and building your property portfolio building a strong team culture, and the power of trust and humility when dealing with your clients. Of course, I also asked him the future of interest rates and the property market. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy the show. Mate, I have not started. I mean, I've messaged you a few times on Instagram, but you probably have the nicest new office I've seen on social media.
1: Yeah, it's a cool new space. Very excited about it. It was a long uh, sort of work in progress. Um, We started looking around for a new office in mid-2020, just after sort of lockdown and COVID hit. We did the opposite thing that everybody else was doing. Everybody else said, all right, everyone's working from home. Um, Maybe we should look at downsizing the the space uh, or their office space and taking advantage of maybe a, a cost saving, right? I actually saw an opportunity where you could get a good deal on a new space because of that reason. Um, took like a year of um, inspecting places. I'm sure you just went through that process yourself. You know how it is. And it was scary actually in the middle of COVID. there was, you know, you could go through a, a building and pick your floor, pick your fit out. There'd be whole buildings empty. It
0: was like a like a scene from one of those um, uh, zombie movies, you know. But it is scary too because at the same time, like I had the same reaction as you. It was like, fuck cheap, cheap offices. Like everything's on sale, Yeah, but, but you're doing it and you're like in your head, you're like, yeah, this could be a good idea. But then, you know, COVID's uh, dragging on and you're like, Oh, wait a second. You know, I've just signed a lease to start mm. here or, or, or we signed the lease for, for the CBD office. And then the next lockdown happened and we're like, Oh, how are we going to fit this thing out? You know, like it, yeah. it, it was scary to it, do. It
1: was scary. Especially yeah. when you feel like you're doing the opposite thing of everybody else. Yeah. It's like, am I doing the wrong thing? Um, but, yeah, no, it was one of the best decisions we made. You know, uh, the, the decision was mainly for cultural reasons for the business, right? Um, we wanted to incentivize people to come back to the office post lockdown, post COVID. You know, people got comfortable working at home. For some people, working from home, you know, works well. For some people, it doesn't, you know, if you're not self-motivated. And also, if you don't have an inbox that's just constantly getting flooded with tasks and projects – and you've got to find things to do, I think you're more likely to find those things to do in an office, you know? Um,
0: And I think it upholds the culture mm. a lot more like companies. uh, I'm going to say, I assume like yours, I can, I mean, I I see your company a lot through, uh, I actually was telling my brother, you should apply for a job there, but he ended up joining Cubs. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you took him from but, me. But yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I messaged uh, Christian Stevens. I was like, hey, m- I think my brother would hey, be great for me. you guys. <laughs> but, I've got, a I've got to it myself. Now. <laughs> but um, um, I think companies that have that the culture of the team, that team culture is a huge essence of that company mm. or a huge source of power of that company needs a great office for, for the staff to come. Because if they work remotely, the culture just kind of, participates.
1: Mm, We've got a big one team, one dream mentality, right? And something our old office, so the new office isn't that much actually bigger than our old office, but on your point about that um, team mentality and in, in one team, one dream, we wanted to make sure the office was conducive to people, not just working together, but also socializing together. So our old office had a very small kitchen. You go in there, use the microwave, toaster, make a coffee, that's it, right? No table, no place to hang. Whereas the new office has like a proper breakout area with the TV and the news or whatever you want to watch on Foxtel. So instead of people peeling off and going down the road to get a cup of coffee with someone they're close to at work, they'll go into the breakout area and probably end up having a coffee with someone they're not close to, right? And then those two people become friends and they start brainstorming issues and they go, how's your day going? Oh, I'm dealing with an ugly scenario here. I don't know what to do. And then the other person might give them some advice that they wouldn't get if they were going down the road for a coffee. Yeah, you know?
0: and and bonding. Mm. The, the, the community, the team, the team is getting closer. Mm. It's funny because people are saying, oh, you know, I don't need to go to the office, I'll work from home. But offices, I can just work from home, I have a desk and a chair. But offices aren't just to work from. Mm. I actually think they're more importantly so – to bond. A hundred percent. Like they're just to 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 make friends in it with your team, to to accomplish something together as one, to to, to, to be a part of something. So have that camaraderie, you need to have an office which is conducive of it, right? Yeah.
1: You can't feel like a, a team without an office that everybody's actually acting together as a team. So You know, to expand on that, you know, the breakout area is one thing I'm proud of, but I don't want to just say we have a fancy bar in the in the office. It's also we try to do the Google sort of we work collaborative workspace thing. Where yes, there's you know desks and hot desks. So if you want a permanent desk or a hot desk, we've catered to that. But then there's also a whole lot of private work areas, which are either to work individually or work with others. So some of them have multiple desks in there. So if you're training, if you're brainstorming something with your assistant, you can go into a private space and actually work privately, you know. Um, I think that makes a big difference. How big is the team now? So there's I think just over 60 now on the team. It's a lot of people. 60 Mm -hmm. onshore. We've got about 25 offshore. Mm -hmm. Um, With that 60 onshore, I'd have to say – there's probably only ever 45 in the office at any time, if that. Maybe maybe 40. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still a large. That's still a, a large majority of people are in there. Yeah, but still, I need to. That's my. That's only thanks to the new office, right? So I need to try and make sure that you know I'm encouraging those brokers to come in as much as possible, so that they are definitely more efficient at their job if they're in a room surrounded by other market-leading brokers, mm. right? Yeah, they feed off each other. There's a bit of competition. Mm. Well, you know, yeah. it's also that like if you're on your own, like the typical broker out there sort of works for themselves or is that franchise model and they're by themselves in their office or at, at home and if they've got a scenario that they're struggling with, they've got to call around. But, you know, in an office environment, you literally just stand up and walk <laughs> over to Go the people. <laughs> yeah, literally, hey, what do you reckon? And, and, you know, our brokers are you know definitely leaders in the, in the industry so you're getting advice off the other leaders in the industry,
0: right? Mm. What I was saying, like what I was saying before we started the episode was uh, what I relate a lot to, to Shaw is in, 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 I guess in common with Cub, it's you're kind of uh, an innovator or the new, the fresh modern brand in what was potentially an old, uh, or older industry. Mm. Uh, we did it with leadership communities and, and you did it with, um, uh, with, uh, brokerages, but mortgage brokerages. So I want to talk about how you actually identified there's a gap in this market, which I can feel perfectly. But before I do, um, I want to hear about your story. How, yeah. you know, did, were you, did you want to own a brokerage? Did, was that always your childhood dream or how
1: did you? So I was always quite motivated um, because I had a, you know, a, a family of um, successful business owners and they were very supportive, always making me dream that anything's possible. And, uh, you know, I always wanted to, to knock the lights out of something um, but uh, I didn't know what that was, right? And you know, I came back from backpacking around the world at 19 years old with a bunch of credit card debt and I, um, I met someone actually backpacking, you know, um who was there, you know, living like a rock star. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm in sales, you know, knock on doors for um, sales companies, selling all types of things. So joined that company, I was assigned the Foxtel contract. So I was knocking on doors selling Foxtel. Um, it was annoying hours. You'd have to knock on doors from like 3 or 4 o'clock till about 8. I think you're not legally allowed to knock on doors past 8. Um, and Saturdays is sometimes the best best day. So um, Saturdays was during the day. And coincidentally, I, I, was, I was great at the job, loved it. Um, I, I got promoted to, to team leader within like a few months and I thought it was so cool at 19 to get a company car it was a it was a big like 12 seater high ace van, and I thought (laughs) that that was pretty cool I thought that was the best perk (laughs) I've ever seen and um I remember one Saturday it was a nice nice day I was in Mossman um uh, at the end of Raglan Street and I was like my friends were going to the pub and I was like oh should I just call it a day and there was one more apartment block to knock on I was like I'm just going to do it knocked on some guy's door and he happened to be the area manager of Commonwealth Bank and we got along, you know, he liked me, I liked him and he said, you know, have you ever thought about joining Retail Banking? And I'll be honest, at the time I was like Retail Banking, well, like to be a teller or something, no thanks, that doesn't sound too exciting, you know. No offence to all the tellers out there but it just didn't really excite me and then he sort of swindled me into thinking, you know, there's some – um cool things with, with retail banking. There is, you know, a sales element. You do get bonuses based on sales. You can, you know, have targets and whatnot. And I was like, okay, because I didn't even think, what are you selling in a branch, right? Um, yeah, I
0: wouldn't even know myself.
1: Yeah, so I joined as a customer service specialist selling credit cards, personal loans. I wouldn't say you're selling. You're just handling all the inquiry and you've got KPIs to so make sure you handle all that as much as you can, right? Um, I wanted to be a branch manager at the time and I had I started training for a branch manager uh, to be a branch manager, and then someone said, "You know what? What the um, potential can be with the the lender and how it's actually a monthly bonus based on um, KPIs." And I I was more attracted to still maintaining customer relations um, as opposed to just being a micromanager as a branch manager, just picking apart all the problems and not really dealing with with customers. So I went down the um, the lending side and. Coincidentally, back in 2009, I bought my first property whilst I was a lender at CBA and I used a broker to optimize my borrowing power. And then I thought, something's wrong with this. Why am I using a broker when I'm a lender at CBA? So then that broker offered me a job. That job was at uh, McGrath Oxygen Home Loan, so the in-house uh, mortgage business of McGrath. Um, I was there for a couple of years. You know, I, I sort of climbed the ladder there and um, a few of us were banding together to um negotiate with John to try and buy the business. John didn't like that that idea. So we uh, we got approached by another real estate group, Richardson and Ranch and said, Hey, we heard you're you're looking at um, you know, building a, a mortgage business. Do you want to come over to to our network and set one up for, for Richardson and Ranch, which had a hundred offices? And so you'd be service you'd be servicing all of their offices. So we did a great little deal where they were exclusively servicing or they were exclusive to refer financial services to us, but we weren't exclusive to them. So at Oxygen, we had to only look after McGraw, but we set up Shore Financial where we could actually look after look after RW, but then every real estate agency under the sun. Mm. Um, so we hit the ground running
0: with a contract of 100 officers. So we started with an opportunity which made it made it a lot easier. And can you explain to so why the real estate agencies do that model? Why why do the real estate agencies want uh, the the mortgage company w- w- uh, partnership or to own it is it so that they can chisel chisel in some of their so you you're, you're, su- you're chiseling some I of their this goes
1: back to you know your comment about finding a, a gap in the marketplace and bringing something new age so um, real estate agents working with mortgage brokers isn't a new concept it's been around a long time but I guess we had a new way of actually um, making that synergy uh, profitable for both parties now it's not just about you know, referral fees and a profit share. Yes, that was one of the ways. But it was actually about uh, integrating our services into a real estate business that complements the day-to-day activities of their business. So we make their job e- easier. We let them know who's a time waster, who's not. We update them on buyers that we're working with saying, hey, yep, this guy's good to go. The buyer wants us to, to update the, the agent because they want the agent to know they're serious and they're ready mm-hmm. to go. Um, and to
0: bring them potential new homes,
1: yeah, and we just also give them visibility on, you know, someone being a bit of a time waster. So there's a lot of time wasters out there that are going through properties and, um, you know, making offers when they're not seriously going to buy the property. Um, so we just we and we support them in the sense that we give them, we try and create listing referrals and, um, you know, give them listings back. We try and um, look for property management opportunities. So
0: it's a two way, you know, reciprocal referral relationship. Um, and and how closely will you work with the so? One thing like it comes up with in a lot of episodes when, when people are doing partnerships, they say you want to be as integrated as possible uh, with the people you partner with. What, what's your um, opinion on on how you how regularly sh- you should be in touch with your partners or, or how do you manage the relationships? Yeah, so we now
1: try and automate those updates as much as we can just because you then become guilty of not doing it manually, right? Mm-hmm. So we, our systems do a lot of that communication. However, you want to be um, updating and, you know, quite intertwined with them, but you also want to make sure you – the problem in our synergy with mortgage broking and real estate uh, – the real estate agents is that the consumer also wants to know that there's some level of separation, right? So that their financial information isn't being divulged to the real estate agent, right? So you've you've got to make sure you're separate organisations and you're, you're running things separately. You're just acting in the best interest of both parties, right? You yeah. know, you're trying to get the, the job done for the real estate agent. And you're trying to do the best thing for
0: the client at the same time. And so you were walking around, you're 19, you're knocking on doors, selling some foxel boxes. Well, th- that's that's kind of like one of the hardest jobs mm. anyone can ever have. Was it that? Was that the experience for you? Or I guess what were some of the greatest that, lessons? Like what were the things you took away from from that time? So um,
1: I was, I did it only for about a year because it, it does get tough towards the end. Um, you know, I. I enjoyed it and it was actually some of the best experience I I ever had because you're really throwing yourself in the deep end and making yourself uncomfortable, opening a a door and speaking to a stranger and trying to get them to sign up to a two-year contract, you know. So and a a good day was three or four sales but to to get three or four sales it was at least 100 knocks, right? So it's a lot of noise. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of rejection, right? So you've got to be – comfortable with rejection. I definitely became comfortable with rejection. Um, it was more awkward when you get a yes. And then you try and ask to use their toilet. That, that was the, that was the more awkward part. I've been walking around, I've been walking around for hours.
0: <laughs> Do you mind if I use your toilet? Thanks for the Foxtel sign up. But And how did you, how, cause I could imagine you being exceptionally good at that. Would you call yourself a people person? Yeah, I'm a people person,
1: but like, I, I wouldn't say, um, ultra confident and arrogant. I'm not like this person that thinks that I'm invincible. I I, I recognize I've got flaws and and I've, you know, I I always say there's a big difference between someone who's um, arrogant and someone who's confident. Someone who's arrogant thinks they're flawless. Someone who's confident knows their flaws and works with them, right? I'm the confident person, you yeah. know. I know I'm not perfect. I know I
0: make mistakes, but I'm having a crack, right? Yeah, and you're kind of just honest and authentic. I reckon that always, being honest, like that kind of authenticness, when you can tell this person's not acting; they're just being themselves and talking to me. That always helped. That always helped me at the start of Cub when I was I'd, before there were lots of members. I'd be sharing the vision with them. You know, some of the first people that ever mm-hmm. joined, and I'm this is what it's going to be, and that you know they could see oh, this this kid's excited. Like it's, it's funny oh, you said that. Him.
1: I I actually really try and manifest that energy, right? So um, when I first started at Foxtel, I was going through like a big detox. I was like being super healthy, exercising every day, trying to to shred for summer, you could say. And I feel that when you're healthy and you're you're trying to um, manifest a a positive energy, what I'd like to do when I used to knock on those doors, I wanted people to actually feel my energy. I wanted people to actually – feel that I was like an honest, genuine person. I'm not stitching them up. I'm just trying to get them to buy Foxtel, you Mm. know, and I'd look for things maybe to appease them, you know, if they saw some footy boots or something, I'd be talking about the sports channels or if they had a big plasma and I was like not even getting digital free-to-air, you know, things like that. Um, But but I wanted them to understand that they could trust me and I've been practicing that ever since. So I always, when I get into a room with someone I'm, you know, trying to form a relationship with, I try to make sure they can really feel my energy and understand I'm someone you can trust. You don't need to say, please trust me. Just, just read me. I
0: learned that lesson when I was uh, – I had one job where I was selling furniture and like kitchens and I learned that if I tell someone the things that I think about uh, – that I think wasn't a positive about a product, I wouldn't even say a bad thing, mm. but like something that's not a positive. If you say, mm, look, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful couch but it, it is a bit heavy – you know what I mean, so like it's mm. hard to move, mm. yeah. They, they're kind of like, oh, this guy just told me something that's not like he's not just telling me, oh, this couch is amazing, it's the best couch you should buy. Like, you're being he, real, yeah, you're being honest. Like, I, I, I mean, at that point, then I started doing it to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, but, but now it's different. Back then, I was young and, and uh, I was, re, I was learning social, um. You you learn these social social, yeah. social awareness. Yeah, you you learn what people look for and what mm. they don't. And then when you realise, well, wait a second, you know, because you probably did it the first time you you do that is you're you're just being honest. And then mm. you realise, oh, this person like that. And then you kind of get to the point where it's like, okay, well, being honest is actually helps someone trust you. Like mm. what you're saying helps them trust you, and yeah. well, and that's a good way to start a
1: relationship. Well, even in the like you know, three years of working in the retail sector of, of Commonwealth Bank, you know, in the branch land. Um, even that you'd think is pretty monotonous work, right? Turning up every day 7.30 to open the branch and, you know, dealing with a lot of the time you're dealing with customers' problems and a lot of the time people really hate the bank, right? But you need to act like I'm on your team and we'll we'll work through these issues with the bank, you know? And – that same relationship nurturing skill and that same approach, I guess, then carried on into the broking industry, right? Because at least I wasn't wearing the bank's uniform and logo. I'm, I'm wearing my own uniform and logo and I'm saying that honestly, we're going to team up against the bank together, mm. right? Um, and that goes back to that social awareness and trying to create that trust without saying, trust
0: me. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's that's what it is. And and really, if you can produce, you know, that that's so much of what your character is um uh, if, if you can produce a company culture, which is what you've done, that carries that that it's it's I get, yeah, the culture of trust. You know, mm. build, we want to build trust with our clients. We want our clients to trust us. We're taking care of you know, a, 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 in a lot of cases, it's the you know a, one of the biggest decisions of their life. A hundred percent. Yeah, they need to trust that we've got their best interests at heart, and and that we need to we need to be honest as well with them in terms of this is not a good idea. This is a good idea. We what think. they can and can't do. Mm. Yeah.
1: Look at you to your point buying property is the, the biggest decisions most people make in their lifetime. And they only make them a handful of times, right? And, you know, it's something that even, you know, very successful, you know, business owners or very, very ex- successful investment bankers or or whatnot, people with fancy job titles still get stressed about, right? And, it's not just the, the trust element, but also showing that you genuinely care and want the right outcome for, for them, right? So when you see them buy their dream home or you see them create so much wealth through property in a journey, some of my relationships I've had for now nine, 10 years. And I've met some of these people when they were a first home buyer buying a little two bedroom unit. Now they've got, you know, 20 or $30 million of property and they feel that they have cre- been on that journey with you. And that's such a rewarding, rewarding re- relationship to be
0: a part of. You know it is. I mean. It is. And it's also, I mean, risky for me to say this, but it's also been amazing too. Because really, you could pretty much guarantee anyone that has bought property with you guys over the how long has the company been now for? Ten, ten years, yeah. Ten years has gone up in value. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so every
1: transaction has been successful, even in the last yeah. four or five, right? And so we've got clients that have been through two of those cycles. Mm. And you've seen them really create wealth to a point where they're now married with kids, and they're buying the family home. And life is quite easy. When back back when we first met them, they're really stressed about how am I ever going to own a family home, you know? And you're just trying to um, nurture them into making a decision on a small unit, and they're they're looking at the big house that sold across the road and thinking, how am I going to afford that one day? Yeah. and so it's, it's and steps, it's, and
0: it's really rewarding when you see them get the house one day. Mm. Yeah, there's steps to things, you know. Mm. You can't have what you want straight away. You've got to. You gotta build that up. And so you you ended up getting the um real estate uh, contract. Real estate contract. Yep. And do you have a business partner?
1: Yep, Alex Nocker. He's uh, he's about 10 years older than me. Um, and he was always he was almost like a I shouldn't say this, but like a second dad, right? He I was always the guy on the ground doing all the the dirty work and running around and um, you know, more hands on. And then he'd be my my soundboard where I'd, you know, my I'd go into the room just to, to vocalize what I'm thinking about and he'd you know sound check things. yeah, I agree. no, I'd calm down on that one, maybe let that one go you know
0: and, and how did you meet him? We met at our previous employer, um, yeah at McGraw. okay, so you guys broke out, went out on your own mm. and and it, obviously you started with you so you got you two you've got this huge contract uh, with the real estate company. Did you freak out because you haven't got any staff yet or how did you yes. well, how did you go with that? So the first
1: uh, six or 12 months were really stressful I remember I went down to Melbourne and actually saw a um, a famous motivational speaker I think his name is Paul McGee um, from northern England and um, he's got a book called the sumo guy um, shut up and move on sumo stands for and um, he he had this this thing where you um, you rate your problems out of ten right? So I got out my phone in this conference and I wrote all my problems down because I was really stressed at that time. I was like, "We're put the money's going out the door." I left a good wicket, right? We were I was um, on a good good income at, at my previous role. I threw that out the door. Um, the income wasn't coming in, but the expenses were going out. You know, we had ran to a whole lot of expenses, even just something as simple as the the, the phone system. The phone bill of this place was was a joke because um, we were in one of those shared offices, and. I was really stressed. We'd been working on that real estate contract for six months, gone out to like 80 offices and we hadn't had one single referral from the whole network because it doesn't happen overnight, right? you really got to show these guys that you're someone that they could work with. I wrote all those problems down and and made a, a calendar reminder to go off in six months' time to re-rate those problems. That was Paul McGee's thing. Put your problems on, the, on a scale once they're now and look at them again six months' time. Six months later, the, the alarm sort of went off and I was coincidentally in a board meeting and things were going really well. We were excited, we were looking at a new office, the team had grown, you know, the network was starting to be a fruitful relationship, all the brokers were were getting some opportunity out of it and and it went off and I looked one by one and I was just like, wow, six months ago, I remember sitting in that, in that it was at the Crown, the conference, I was like, I remember sitting in that ballroom at the Crown and listening to that guy and I was freaking out about these things, questioning if I made the right decision. And now in hindsight, those problems are nothing to me,
0: you know? Yeah. yeah. As you get more mature in business, like when you first start your business, you think everything is going to kill you. Mm. Everything that goes bad, you're like, oh my God, this is it. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. But then as you get, I guess as the years go by, you're just kind of more and more like, ah, mm. nah, whatever. It'll, I'll fix it. You're willing to make mistakes. I mm. think that as the years go by, you realize mistakes make you stronger. So- I've made loads of mistakes, you know. And you just gain the confidence, you knowing. Oh well, we, I mean, something worse has happened and that didn't really affect us that, you know, like mm. we solved that and we moved on. We'll move on. Yeah. yeah. I used to think like if one person didn't like Cub at the start, I was like, oh, my God, like it, it sucks. This is the end. Like, yeah, but, but, but now I've said it in an episode before, fucking T-Rex could rip off the roof of the clubhouse. Be, ah, whatever. We'll build a new roof. Like, you know, mm. like every problem is always an opportunity to grow. It's not an actual problem. Mm. It's an opportunity 100%. to get better. Yeah. And, but if you look at it that way.
1: Yeah. So if you look at your mistakes that way, if you dwell on them like they were just a big failure and don't learn from them, then it's, a, it's your own detriment. Yeah, it,
0: it's your choice how mm. you look at things. Mm. I, I, I definitely learned that. And you were saying, shit, did I uh, – was that a good idea? Did Should I have moved? Should I have moved my good job? I was making good money and started this thing and now I could be in debt. Mm. Or What was the – what was the thought process? What gave you the courage to change jobs? Was it because you came from a family of business and you thought, hey, um, I, you know, my, my parents are in business and my grandparents are in business, I'm gonna be in business too? Or what was the drive?
1: I have to, as sad as it is to admit, it's a bit of that, right? I, I just felt, you know, I wanted to run my own business. You know, um, I was a bit of a uh, delinquent and a naughty boy as a teenager. So I also wanted to like right my wrongs. <laughs> Um, <laughs> make my parents love me again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wanted to prove
0: I'm a good boy now. I yeah. swear, because
1: I was only twenty, three or four when I started. Um, sure. So
0: oh, that was same same age as me when I started.
1: Yeah. So you know, you, you still feel like you need to make it up to your parents at that age for anything you've done in your teenage years. Um, and yeah, I just I, I felt like we were lucky to have a, a contract to run with before the, uh, we even had a brand name, right? So these people that approached us knew that we were good at our job because we were top in the company and the company was top in the industry. So they were like, well, we want you guys to do it, figure out what you want to call your business and figure out how you want to do it, but let's just do it.
0: Mm. And so where did the name Shaw come from?
1: We spent a whole day in a boardroom um, in North Sydney at uh, whatever that, the Harbour View Hotel um, and every name you can think of that's something financial or um, something finance is pretty much taken because financial and finance covers a very broad range of services. Anything in the financial services industry, not just mortgage broking, right? And everything we'd think of, we'd search, and then it wasn't. It was uh, wasn't available and taken. And then um, I once again, probably shouldn't admit this, but then at the end of the day, six six thirty, we went to the Greenwood Pub. And we're having a couple beers there thinking what we're going to call our business. And I made a comment saying, actually, I used to um, come to this pub when in, in year 12 when I used to go it's to school. shore school. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, "Hey, what about shore financial? But we didn't want any a connotation with the school. We wanted the connotation to be with the ocean, right? Because then after speaking to some marketing guys, you know how they love to, to sugarcoat things, they said there's some, a soothing a connotation with the seashores, right? And when you're talking about a stressful subject, you could put some water and yeah, some beach like pictures that. in
0: the background, and it makes it soothing. That's so marketing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a cool story, <laughs> and and so anyway, the business is obviously now taking off. You've got a huge digs in. It's in North Sydney, isn't it? Mm. Um, you've got sixty, or I guess almost a hundred staff with the offshore, and mm. um, and and you've truly created. Uh, a, a big, well-known. You, you, wait, aren't you the number uh, number one independent. independent? So the only uh, brokerages bigger than us are those big
1: franchise groups, which I don't really compare myself to because they're like a hundred different businesses. Really, if there's a hundred different franchises, they're are a hundred different businesses. But we're one office, which is that, which is why we have that great culture because we're all in that one one workspace, sharing ideas. Even that something as simple as the the group WhatsApp thread is is a value add to our to our team members. Yeah, yeah, we're We've been number one for six years in a row. So not long after we um, started, we started sort of collecting up. Dominating. And, yeah, getting some awards. <laughs> and to your point, we were like, um, we were the the kitty table at the awards, right? Because the average age of a, of a broker is something like 55 years old in New South Wales. And we were all in our mid-20s, right? Apart from my business partner who was 10 years older. And we looked like at the awards events that there was a kiddies table at the back and who brought all the kids? <laughs> and then finally the kitty table started winning the awards. We were like, yeah, we'll show you, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, Yeah, no, it grew. Back then we we're doing like, I think about 15, 20 million a month, uh, uh, a month in settlements. Now we're doing more like 200, 250. So we've really grown a lot. Um, and it's just been the same strategy, but with simple changes along the way,
0: right? Mm. What would you call your strategy?
1: Hiring the right people and making sure people are in line with our brand ethos and our culture—you know that that one dream, one team, uh, one team, one dream mentality—sharing, you know, with people around you. There's two types of, and this this is relevant for a lot of um, industries: real estate, financial planning, uh, mortgage broking. There's two types of individuals in those industries. There's the hunter or the gatherer. The the hunter goes and finds business, and the gatherer just farms, what you give them, right? We want the hunters. You know, we we train them to have the the skills to be great at their job. We want them to be uh, proper financial advisors so they're not just salespeople. Some of our other competitors in the industry uh, set up their business like a call centre where they break down every part of the process so that there's no one really accountable or owning the relationship with the client. We want our brokers to own the relationship with the client so that the client Feels like they have a
0: relationship with someone in the organisation, mm. right? They're more sticky that way. Um, yeah, it's it's more long term. I've got a relationship. Why, yeah. why would I use some? Why would I go to another um, uh, brokerage if I've got a relationship which I, with someone I trust and like that's been successful in the past here? Sure, because you're less likely to have a relationship with the organisation. It's a bit
1: like your accounting mm. requirements, right? Mm. At a, your accounting firm, you have a relationship with an individual. You know, if that individual left, you'd, you'd be like, "Oh, so who do I now deal now deal with?" And it's you become less sticky if they keep swapping your accountant on you. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, hundred percent. We, I, Cub can actually relate to that a lot as well. Mm. And I was saying it before. Obviously, you're very different. So the industry was this one kind of image um, of mortgage companies, mm. and you guys, other than being, uh, other than looking like children at the awards table, mm. you guys really did create a new. I don't know if it, if you if you call it innovate it innovated the industry, but I, I think you have because I'm we'll get into that. But you definitely created an innovative brand and mm. like a, a brand that stood out and a, a culture that stood out.
1: A young brand, you know, it's young, a, a, modern, a,
0: a young, modern, cool, new age brand that was doing things differently. So. Was Can that was I, that it was that so the question, sorry, was was that intentional? Did you see that and then act on that or did that naturally happen because of who you are?
1: Yes and no, right? So a lot of it naturally happened because of who we were, right? So the first 10, 20 people that we hired were mainly my circle group of friends who are my age, right? So we all just naturally were a young team in the industry. The average age, like I said, or someone's is 55. So that 55-year-old isn't embracing uh, you know uh, CRM systems, you know uh, technology, SMS broadcasting systems, new technology to change their business. They're just not really embracing change in itself, right? Where we were constantly, everyone in the team would have a new idea. We're like that's a great idea. You know, we had a very flat management structure, so it it wasn't like a hierarchy. When you wanted to, if you had an idea, if you're one of the newest people in the team, you've been there for a few months, and you had an idea, didn't? It wasn't like you had to go to your superior, and your superior had to go to the director, and the director had to go to the board. It's you could go straight to me or my business partner, and we go. You know what? It's a great idea. Let's do that.
0: Mm. So you you really did. It, it was just. It was the. It was a modern company. Mm. It does make sense too. You can kind of get like. You you, you can get why someone. Uh, you call them an older person, but it doesn't even have to be an older person. It could just be anyone that's been in a role or industry for an extended period of time. Mm. Why they would be reluctant to change. They're like, oh, I don't want to change. I've already learned how this works. I've been doing this this way for years. Do you know what I mean? Whereas you you it, do naturally become more reluctant to change with age. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but I, I think it's more. It's I, it, I I really do believe it's less so the age. I think it's more so the time in the role. Okay, I've done it this way for so long. If you took an older person well, not an old person, let a 55-year-old person <laughs> yeah. who these days is basically 30, But and you you put them in a, a new industry mm. and they don't have any preset expectations of the industry or, or preset habits for the industry or anything like mm. that, I reckon that they, they are uh, happy to- To learn. To, yeah, to learn. You it's just, just being you, in a role for
1: too long that creates mundaneness. You just touched on something that I probably should have highlighted, I forgot to, to mention. We did have a rule of hiring novices to the industry. So we didn't like finding someone that was already a broker, someone who already was experienced because they even if they were, you know, same age and with the same new age um, ideas, typically they don't like change, changing their ways and their processes and they're a bit of a know-it-all and something's working for them already. So we loved hiring completely green people that would come on board and learn our ways, our processes. Well, we'll still adopt
0: to, to anything to their suggestion, but we wanted them to come on board with our way. But it makes complete sense because – Otherwise, you're basically just hiring the existing industry, mm. and it's just going to become the existing industry. Mm. If you were creating, you know, creating an innovative, modern company, you it's probably best to find people that have never touched the industry before. Because, and also, like you, it, it all fits, like what you're saying. Those people also come up with ideas that maybe the industry wouldn't come up with because they've come from different industries or from mm. different backgrounds. And if they have access to your office to bring them up, now mm. you've got this constant flow of innovative uh, ideas and this energy where people have ownership over. The Mm. like you know when when uh, in your type of uh, company culture exactly the same as Cub it gives people ownership to feel that I can contribute to the company I can bring an idea to the table that can be executed I'm part of the company Mm.
1: I am the company Yeah I'm I'm, I've got a you know sense of entitlement
0: almost Mm. It's a good thing Mm. It it means that it's not a job Mm. It's 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 uh, I I don't know if it's a passion but it's A project they're working on, something they're building, something that they can be proud of. The the long-term project, yeah. Yeah. You can be proud of the success
1: of this, Mm, hundred percent. When when we win an award, it's not just like me and my my business partner are are winning the award. Mm. The team really feels like they won the award, right? And everyone's proud
0: about it. Everyone's sharing it on their Instagram. You know, Mm. it's great. Yeah, it's that's that's what that just shows that your team feels ownership over the company and brand. Mm. You know, they, they're proud. to. You know, it's kind of like, oh, oh, shit, it jumped out of my head. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah, it's like when you're talking to someone and they work at a company and they speak in terms of like, they speak like, oh, uh, w- you know, we just purchased this asset or we just did this or mm. it's, a, it's a weird. They, they're saying like oh, I was involved in that even if they didn't. Like mm. I had a friend that worked um, at a big develop. Uh, uh, development company and he'd always just, oh, you know, uh, I just purchased this asset. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> like he, like he was, um, but, but was he, he was buying the building or, or, or yeah. the land, but, but he was just, he felt a part of the company. So, he wanted, he yeah. wanted to
1: be involved in the transaction.
0: Yeah. Well the company bought it and he's the company and therefore mm. he did, you know, yeah, the, yeah. I, I think that's a good thing. I don't mm. think it's a bad thing. Um, uh, at all. And have you always been in North Sydney? Has that always been where the office so is? So
1: that first office that was a little service office was actually Crow's Nest. Um We then moved – we've moved offices now four times actually. So we moved to um, Mount Street, North Sydney. We started on like a little 100 square metres there. Then we um, got the one next door and knocked down the wall and got to like 270 square metres there. Then we went down to Walker Street. We, we were there for like five years on like level three and four where – Mount Street, we had the top floor, which had a really cool vibe, windows all, all the way around. It felt like the penthouse. That that was like the good old days. And I remember when we were there and we are all having fun, that's when all the team, the brokers themselves, just started becoming quite successful brokers. And so everyone was sharing in on their success. And I remember at the time we were saying, are we going to look back at this and say this is the good old days? And that was the good old days. It was just about all winning together. And then um, we went down to Walker Street, away from the penthouse down to level three and four, um culturally I didn't it wasn't the best decision separating the team on two floors so then we tried to cram, um, cram everybody on one floor we still had
0: plenty of space but
1: then we lost things but like do
0: you like North Sydney as for example opposed to the CBD do you think what what are the benefits good question I like I think
1: I live in the eastern suburbs and it would be you'd think more convenient to drive to the city but it's actually quicker and easier to drive in North Sydney you hop in the tunnel and you and you've got one traffic traffic light before you're in North Sydney, and you get better rent. Yeah, and you get better rent. You get yeah. a good thirty percent discount off the CBD, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I just also you because there's less buildings. It's more likely that you'll find a building with a view, um, and I think the views are a, a great way to to spend the day sometimes when you're on the phone. At least you're looking out at it something. Hundred
0: percent, hundred percent. And um, here, well, one thing I was talking to Gavin Rubenstein about like who I know you're, you you know Gavin as well. Mm. Um, in last week's episode, he was he had a big emphasis on helping his team, helping the people in his team become successful themselves, and mm. and growing them. And that's something that you do very much at, at Shore as well. How do you go about that, or how do you communicate that and assist that?
1: You know, going back to what I was saying about how I feel about clients and genuinely um, feeling happy and and rewarded when I see some a client succeed in their property journey, I feel the exact same about. Uh, a broker join the team. I love seeing someone who has come on board and they might have been a bit, you know, financially strapped and struggling when they joined and then two, three years later they're buying their first property, you know, they're they're able to afford to travel around the world and they have financial freedom. And I find that really rewarding and, you know, I put a lot of effort into everybody that joins the company to make sure that that they get there, you know. Mm. And when if someone doesn't make it, we've got a pretty low turnover these days of people that don't make it because they're a bit more – meticulous in who we hire.
0: Mm. Um, it does take time to get that, though, doesn't mm. it? Like it, in the first few years of business, the, hi- the hiring policy. Yeah, well, mm. you, you you hire. You're less successful with team. Like Cub had a high turnover of team members uh, the first three to four years, and large part that wasn't even the people's fault themselves. Large part that was the company trying to figure out okay, well, what is the structure of team we need? Who is the right person for each role? What are these roles? Because, you know, we weren't – we had to kind of invent new, a new mm. company, a new business model, new roles. So we didn't have a model to kind of mm. cut, copy and paste. So, you know, it, to my point, but most companies will have lower staff retention at the start and then as the company finds itself a bit more, gets a bit better at it, it uh, has a really high retention. Well, like a I remember of
1: years. A, a CFO that we had running our board meetings um, – about five years ago said to me, hire slowly and fire quickly. You know, when there's a problem and someone's, especially when someone's being toxic to your culture because that can happen really quickly, you've got to address it straight away and, you know, warn them, we're not going to put up with this. Toxic cultures, the word, and one person will spread like cancer. I was about to say, I don't want to use the word, but it's like a cancer that could spread throughout the whole office real quick. It's amazing how that can spread to even some of your staff that might be in different states. You know, you you find out they're talking, and I'm like, you spoke to so and so. What What
0: the hell? What are you even speaking to him for? (laughs) It's, 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 but it's almost, it kind of demonstrates the power of a positive person because often you don't, the the positive person doesn't. stand out like a, mm. like like the negative world no, so yeah. when you see the negative spread you're like okay well the positive is probably taking the same is, is spreading at the same speed but you know so um, that's why you're it, not noticing it as much so
1: you also then need to you know on the flip side is make sure it's sometimes it's um, easy to not recognize the positive person in their achievements so you've got to also make make a conscious effort to you know, recognize people doing a good job. You know, and sometimes they're quite the quiet achiever. It doesn't need to be you know the brokers in the team that are hitting the, the the big numbers and and taking all the glory. It could just be your processing staff, someone who's been with you for a long time, who's who's been processing a you know, huge volume of applications and is doesn't really you know cause any grief and has been very appreciative of the job. Recognize them for their great work and, and
0: makes people happy in the office. Mm. You know, compliments them, smiling all the time, like. Mm. Know, spends time, gets to know people bonds. This person is yeah. the glue. They're keep they're keeping everyone together. They might not be the scoring the goals, you know, they might not be doing um that. The, but the quarterback stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were, you know, they, they they assisted and or they were the coach or they, they were the person talking to them, supporting them, giving them the energy they're to go out. They're an integral, and, integral part of the team, mm, you know. Yeah. There's all but you need every player. Yeah.
1: We've got a, a lot of those um sort of people in our processing team that I feel they don't get the um recognition that they they probably deserve. And I try and make sure they they get the recognition they deserve because they also deal with the broking team, who can be quite high maintenance. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, it, <laughs> yeah. Anyone that has anything to do with with um, sales, sales is yeah. always so <laughs> emotional. Especially <laughs> yeah. the high achiever in sales, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get they want everything done yesterday. <laughs> yeah. But they only get the passion and emotion. And their mood goes up and down. <laughs> yeah. My my old man told me something once. He goes, "Never piss off your sales people on Monday." <laughs> If you mm. have to speak to them, do it on Friday. Mm. <laughs> because otherwise they if you hurt their feelings on Monday, they're, they're getting a bad, they're getting a bad zone. They're, they're not going to be feeling good the rest of the week. Uh, yeah, so like you need to have a tough conversation. Do it on Friday. Do Save it on Friday. To- they go think about it over the weekend. Yeah, yeah. I've always, I've always remembered that. I kind of would have told me that when I was like 12. Um, I, I do want to talk about, I, I do want to dive into your, um, uh, to your expertise in the property market at this point in time, what's happening, interest rates, inflation, uh, so have you? Um, I guess the big question is: Do you think interest rates are going to go up and therefore bring the property prices down? So there's due, a yeah due to inflation or any other reasons. So there's a lot going on out there, and there's a lot of noise
1: in the media, especially the media love the gloom and doom news. Um, bad news sells well in Australia, especially. And I, I don't think the you know the property market's going to fall apart with rising interest rates because even if interest rates uh, rise and other a half a percent or a percent, they're still very low interest rates relatively to the last 20 years, right? Um, There is, you know, a a theory to say that for the last 20 years we've been on a downward trend for interest rates and now we're probably at the first point in 20 years that's going to start being an upward trend. Um, But that upward trend comes with some good signs, right? It's coming with some strong inflation. It's coming with some strong wage growth. I have my own theory on wage growth that's not entirely accurate because it's not um, accounting for all the people that – um, work in these WeWork spaces and these shared offices which have moved from POYG to now self-employed. They've clearly moved forward, but there's no wage increase, right, being reported. Um, inflation, there was a lot of um, comments last year about it being, uh, I think the word was transitory inflation, which is more around um, supply and demand issues, which definitely was the case. So uh, Both brand new and second-hand cars saw 20% inflation.
0: Basically meaning... Things are going up in price because there's not enough things because people can't get them in because we can't manufacture enough of them, right? Or or ship them in or or demand has been unusually high, right? Um, You want to buy office? You want to buy some office furniture? Well, look, we can't get that. We can only get two tables now. Uh, I've got I've got two tables here. I was going to give them to this guy. He was going to pay fifteen hundred, but he give me two thousand five hundred. I'll give it to you instead. Exactly, and and the other
1: thing is that you know for two years. Um, Australians haven't really been able to spend money on on traveling like they do. Australians are some of the most, you know, a um, uh, culture that tra- travels around the world the most. Um, so that money has gone into spending on other things, you know, buying a car, buying a TV, you know, JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman, all those businesses had record years, right? So there has been, um, you know, a bit of a, a manipulation on inflation, but in America, um, I think we need to reference US because, the U.S. is sort of the leader of the developed nations. <laughs> Whatever yeah, the happens there hits us a bit. A hundred percent, especially the, the the U.S. Federal Bank. They're like the global bank. What they do, we sort of follow. Um, they've had two quarters of, of two quarters of pretty aggressive inflation. They've had seven percent last quarter, and I think it was four percent the quarter before. Um, don't quote me exactly to that, but no, it's but around. It's a lot. It's, it's high. A, it's it was, around yeah. those figures, and so they already came out last month in January to say that they're going to have to increase interest rates next month in March. Um, and there's talks that they might be increasing by a whole 1% in one month, right? If the US starts increasing interest rates very aggressively, we do need to, you know, start following suit only because from a bonds market point of view, um, you know, investment banks and, and um, people around the world buy these uh, bank bonds where if the bonds in America are paying a much higher yield than the bonds in Australia – and all the bonds here get sold and when they sell those bonds, they're selling the dollar, which makes our dollar crash. So we kind of need to
0: stay in line with America to keep our dollar high basically. Yeah, because our dollar's not high enough. I need it higher before I get to Europe in July. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <you> know. <laughs> and exactly. so what you're saying, let, let's see if I get it right, we're at the we're at the point now where interest rates do have to start going up in some sense, particularly if the US doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um. If they do go up, they're not going to go up by a huge amount. But even if it did go up by, I mean, what would be a small amount to go up by? I think they're going to move up in 10,
1: 20 basis points in increments. So 0.1, 0.2%. Yeah. I think the most we'll see this year is half a percent. And even if we saw, you know, more than that, I I don't see it impacting the economy or the property market too much. It it might impact the economy in other ways like consumer spending. You know, people naturally – get a bit fearful when their mortgage repayments go up. Um, So you might see consumer spending drop off, but I don't see the property market falling apart. A good benchmark would be the GFC, right? Let's look at what happened there. Interest rates went up initially, then down. The share market went from 6,800 points. The ASX share market went from 6,800 down to, I think, 2,800. I really got smashed, more than halved. And the Sydney property market came off 7% which isn't that much, right? And that was the gloom and doom of things, right? That's when, you know, there was blood on the streets. Mm-hmm. We're not about to see the blood on the streets, you know, that whole subprime mortgage crisis that once again started in America and then led, came here. Um, it, 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 it We were protected from that here in Australia.
0: And, and also when the banks lend the money, they always factor in a high interest rate when they lend it to you anyway, don't they? So they say, okay, this person would be able to afford it. Uh, You're right. That's basically price, so. what I was implying that – what happened in America
1: can't ever happen here because our our lending has been very heavily regulated for a long time. So they always put a buffer above what you actually pay. So at the moment it's about two and a half percent. so they make sure that consumers can afford the loan at around five and a half
0: percent. And Mark Boris was telling me literally last week that Australia has, or he's telling me something along the lines of I don't want to quote him exactly, but Australia has the lowest default rate of any country mm. on home loans so basically australians aren't that does go
1: back to the 20-year trend though right so when you've taken your mortgage years later it's less the interest is less so things might change with an uh increasing trend but look yeah we're,
0: we're a very um very safe because interest rate sorry just, i just got what you're saying the because inter- interest rates are going down the cost of your mortgage is going down so heads- it's hard it's if you if you were able to
1: afford it when you first bought the property and 5 years later interest rates are a lot less you're probably earning more now and your property's cheaper to replace yeah so yeah. default's been very low cause of that um,
0: and so what effect do you think would you think obviously no one knows so we're not telling listeners hey this is what's mm. going to happen we're just talking like hey this is my opinion uh, what do you think what effect do you think it'll have on the property market and is now a good time to purchase or is it a good time to wait? Or I know that's a tricky question so, for someone like yourself to have to answer, but No, I've got some I've got some passionate views towards that. I never
1: think someone should be making a decision based on their economic economical forecast, you know? I think the hardest thing to do is actually find a property you want to buy and buy it, right? You know, and the perfect property also is the perfect amount of compromise. Nothing's going to tick all the boxes, but there's so little stock in, especially in Sydney, there's so little supply of of housing that the hard and a huge a huge amount of demand. The hardest thing for people to do is actually find something they want. So don't think, oh wait, if I found another property like this in a year's time, and the property market might come off five or ten percent because of these interest rates they're talking about in the media take out your crystal ball you know forecasting you're not a, a no world, way, no. so you're yeah. not a world leading economist it's same as i feel like with trading shares you should b- just buy shares when you want to buy shares for a long term view to hang on to them for a long term don't worry about whether you could have gotten them cheaper 6 months and later and what
0: about do you think that the because ha- the property jumped like 20% in the past what very short period of time so i think it the it will cool off in the sense that
1: you know at the moment agents are guiding um, a certain price and, you know, it will, sorry, not at the moment, but last year in particular, they were guiding a certain price and it was going 30, sometimes 40% above the price guide. I think you'll see less of that. I think you're going to see things selling for more accurately. (laughs) (laughs) More accurately in the price guides. Um, So I guess in a way that is some sort of, you know, cooling off or correction, um, but they're still going to be strong. You're still going to be at an auction with another person who wants to buy that property. Because in Sydney in particular, the supply just is always outweighed in demand. We cannot
0: make enough housing here in Sydney. Do you think that the increase in interest rates, if it happens, will create more supply though? And that perhaps that would have a bigger effect on the price, on the value, on the purchase price of properties than the interest rate itself?
1: Potentially. So one thing that will happen is when interest rates go up, your borrowing power will decrease because of that buffer that we spoke about. There's a 2.5% buffer thereabouts. Um, that is applied to what you pay so if rates go up then that buffer goes up with it then the assessment rate that the banks are calculating your affordability is also increasing so you subsequently will be borrowing less what that might mean is that a lot of people in the last five or ten years when they had their first you know one or two bedroom pop- property that they bought when they've gone to buy the family home with a you know a a, a, a husband or a wife with dual income um, they keep that previous property that they own You'll start to see that they might not be able to afford to keep the previous property, or they might, you know, not be able to afford to maintain the, the property they have if they want to do a renovation, do things. So you might see more transactions because your
0: borrowing powers will, will will decrease, and that extra supply then could bring the prices down further. Yes, but I don't see a huge amount of supply, yeah. and but I- maybe not bring them down, drop, but potentially cool off the increase the, the fast growth of value? There'll just be less competition on each transaction, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Last year, sometimes there was 10, 15 contract holders on a property, right? You know, already there's there's more like five or so. So mm-hmm. there's already less competition. Um, and if there's more stock, yeah, maybe there'll be two or three on each one. So you're not having 10 people at auction seeing all the auction cards going, oh my God, I've got so many people here that are trying to buy this property. Let's just keep going, you know? I think you'll see less of that, but... Just the supply in in, a, in Sydney in particular, there's only two growth corridors that can build new housing in terms of land, and that's the southwest corridor and the northwest West corridor, and units in particular are very hard to get approved and build in, in, in Sydney. Uh, there's limited areas you can actually build units, so the supply will always be outweighed by demand in my opinion.
0: No, I agree, and Sydney's got the advantage because just the geography of it, just the the water stops the land. The harbour really yeah. makes things difficult. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Not, everyone wants to be as close as possible to the water. What advice would you have for someone looking to start building their property portfolio or their wealth through through property? How What's a good way to start if they haven't already?
1: Yeah, so the words property portfolio, I always say, people think that doesn't apply to me, but a property a property portfolio starts with your first property and that first property might literally be a one-bedroom or a studio. And... Every decision you make from that first property onwards has a compounding effect financially to your property journey and they're quite significant um, decisions or effects. So things like understanding how capital gains tax works and whether you can get an exemption if you make it your primary residence or little things that you can move out if it's been your primary residence and rent that property out for five or six years and not pay capital gains tax, all these things people are really not across sometimes when they're making these, you know, important lifetime decisions. Um, So I think speaking to the right experts, so – you know, you've got to hassle your accountant sometimes. Accountants can be reactive, not proactive. So you've got to get in their ear and say, hey, you know, how does the capital gains tax work or negative gearing? That's something that a lot of people... <laughs> how can
0: I not pay capital gains tax? <laughs> yeah, literally.
1: It's, it's a big one. Um, and there's there's discounts on capital gains tax but also understanding how they work because I've seen, you know, smart people make silly decisions like buying a property in the name of a company. If you're buying a company, you don't get a capital gains tax um, discount. Um, you know, how if some people like to buy in a trust, you still get a discounted trust, but how does that, you know, then impact me? Why would I buy in a trust? You know, if you're buying an investment property, you know, the trust would be to cipher uh, rental income to multiple people over years. Things like that, um, and so these are the questions people should be asking
0: their broker. A hundred percent, or well, property advisor. Who would they
1: ask? So the broker, the broker can plant the seed for some of these topics, but the the seeds then need to be, you know, turn oh, into the accountant, the yeah, bank. Oh, they, no, they need to go the to the accountant and, and confirm. You know, so the thing that the broker can do, something that we do well, is um, sort of. Debt consolidation advice, structuring your debt ideally for tax purposes. So, let's talk about the the, the family who've got you know um, ambitions to buy an investment property. Um, they might have a you know home in Bondi or whatnot, and they've got some cash in their offset account uh, offset account against that home, which they want to use as a deposit for the investment property. That's not the right thing to do. And that a lot of people go do that. They pull their money out of their home loan to go buy an investment property and put it down as a deposit, when really they should leave their money in their home minimize the debt on their home, which is a personal debt and non-deductible, borrow the full amount of that investment property against their home and it's fully deductible. Those little decisions, if you compound the effect of maximizing your investment
0: debt and minimizing your owner-occupied debt, it makes a big difference over a decade or two. And so how do you recommend people make sure they make all the smart decisions? Who is the person they should be talking to?
1: Getting the right advice. I don't want to be plugging myself in, but speak to a sure financial broker is a yeah, good start. Okay.
0: But you guys can definitely nudge them in the right direction. Of, hey, you should ask your accountant. This we, yeah, you should... we trigger the conversation. Um, good. Okay. No, I think that's awesome. We have to wrap up because Laura keeps twirling her fingers. and We've actually been talking for a while. Mm. But um, what would you say is your greatest lesson in business or something that you'd like to share with the listeners? So I think
1: um, my greatest lesson by far would be practising humility. So being humble in your work. You know, even when you um, succeed, you know, don't let success uh, turn you into a different person because I've seen so many people, not in our business, not even our, in just in our industry but you know, in our client stories or in our you know, other industries, just friends of friends, where they get a taste of success and success turns them arrogant and then they, you know, fall apart quite quickly. You they know? stop
0: looking to learn. They stop looking to learn. Yeah, that's what
1: A hundred percent. And they think that all their ideas are the brightest ideas and they become a bit of a know-it-all. And I think if you're successful in your career, you know, practicing, you know, humility with be- whilst being successful is such a powerful thing so that you always, you know, are open to learning, you know, new ideas and new concepts and always being open to the concept that you you might be wrong, you know, that you might be doing something wrong and, and that your method could 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 change mm. and being able to adopt and adapt
0: to change. And I would say even don't be embarrassed to admit, yeah, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. I, I changed my mind. Mm. No, people don't change their mind enough these days. If you know it's like ah oh, this is what I believe. I'm never changing my mind. Whereas yeah. like in business some you need to have the you need to have yeah the humility to be like, you know what? That is a better way to do it. Yeah, it goes back to that point I, I, I mentioned about
1: arrogance versus um, confidence. You know, an arrogant person thinks they're flawless, and a confident
0: person recognizes their flaws and goes with them. Hundred percent. You're a legend. Thank you so much for your time today and coming on the show. And to our awesome listeners, uh, if you want to find out more about Mr. Theo Chambers, get in contact, get in contact with Shaw, find out uh, more information, you can go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you'll find it all there along with all of our other incredible guests. If you want to catch up with Cub on socials, you can go at Club of United Business and find uh, a bunch of wicked things there. Does Shaw have an Instagram that people can follow? Or? Yep, we've got a, a, a blog page, Instagram, podcast. At, at Shaw well. Financial.
1: Yeah, just www.shawfinancial. Go on there and have a look at um, lots of resources. We've got animated videos explaining some of the topic topics we covered. Um, yeah, our, our Instagram. What's your podcast called? Uh, Property and Finance. And they can find that on Spotify and Apple. Yeah, it's at the moment in the past has been with a lot of people like yourself and other other sort of um hosts, but we've brought it in house. And now we're doing it ourselves. Awesome.
0: Good on you. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks.